Hi, everyone. Welcome to Winston & Strawn's Let's Talk Living podcast. I'm Ryan Hunsaker, a partner at the finance group at Winston & Strawn, focusing my practice on commercial lending and finance transactions, such as reserve-based financings, asset-based financings, midstream financings, and acquisition financings. I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague, Erin Webb, who is an associate here in our Houston office in the finance group and focuses her practice on commercial lending and financial transactions, as well as our guest speakers, Brett Finn, Managing Director of the Derivatives, Structuring, and Marketing Group at Texas Capital Bank, and Blake Kirschman, Senior Vice President, Energy Finance at Independent Financial. Today, we'll be discussing current trends in interest rates and energy lending, as well as the markets overall, and where we see things going in the future. So, Brett, uh, Blake, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Great. We're very excited to talk to you all today. Um, figured we would pick this off with just talking about the general market as a whole. Obviously, people are very interested in not only the equities market and where that's been going over the last you know few months, particularly since war broke out in Europe, but also the commodities market and interest rates. Interest rates continue to increase. The Fed is expected to continue to increase rates further this year, which is impacting both consumers and businesses as well. And energy prices have obviously gone up as the world reopens after COVID and due to recent geopolitical and also now we're facing certain supply issues. So can you all talk about a little bit where you've seen the market go recently and where you expect it to go in the foreseeable future? Want me to go? I would love to, okay. rates, man. <laughs> Rate, rates man. I've heard worse. Uh, I've heard rates guru. I've heard... Uh, it's amazing what bankers introduce you as, actually, when it's a rates guy. Uh, just for everyone listening's background, Brett and I have known each other probably 10 plus years. Uh, families know each other. We live in the same, we coach together. We see a lot of different things and we, we know a lot of the same clients. And I think one of the fun parts before we kick off of this is I remember, you know, we were kind of transitioning jobs at one point and, and a CFO that we had banked out of Dallas, Don McClure, said, mm-hmm. you know what? You need to team up with Brett. Y'all are two pretty good, not to toot our horns, but y'all are pretty two good bankers. And, uh, you know, y'all should do some things together. And I remember calling Brett and he's like, I just don't think well, there'd be too much, two powers combined. So, uh, you know, here we are. Uh, I'm not sure that was the exact quote, but it was close enough. <laughs> Don, Don can correct us later. He'll text us. Uh, I'll ask But long term relationship here, but no, Brett, far off on the, the commodity, or not commodity, the rates and uh, uh, stock market side. And we'll jump in where we need to. Well, I agree. And by the way, I, I took them with this, was not a phone conversation. We went to this place where you grow your own meat which he is not a fan of. He's told me I have ch- terrible choice in restaurants, which is... It was an interesting choice. It was a great like, choice. Go, he's like, it's great. I was like, it's hot outside, and, and I'm sitting in front of a flame pit throwing you know steak and pork on. I was like, Brett, we could have gone to Subway for a lot of care. That's an insult to all people who <laughs> skew their own meat. But anyway, side note, um, Ryan Hunsker and myself have served on more than a dozen RBL deals over the years while I'm a rates guy now. Uh, I was also a corporate banker, and so we go back lots of years, and it's a pleasure to work with Aaron as well. So I've heard a lot of great things. But look, from a rate standpoint, you know, as we talk about at the bank, there's not a more exciting time to actually have an opinion on this. Where you go through, having done this since kind of 2003, you go through lots of cycles when rates are, well, the way we've been going, the Fed has lowered rates twice to kind of we're near zero, essentially. And at that point, not a lot of people want to talk about rates because the Fed has done a much better job, or I shouldn't even say much better job, a much different job since the Greenspan era of the late 90s of kind of being transparent. So used to be on the trading desk and kind of 
05, where we would make little side bets about whenever the Fed would come out, it would be like, all right, it's coming out at 1 o'clock. Who thinks they're hiking? Who thinks they're cutting? Are they staying the same? And it was kind of an unknown. Now I feel like the Fed does a pretty good job of hinting at what they're going to do. Volcker, they would say back in the 70s, everybody wants to talk about the 70s because of stagflation and everything we're seeing now with moderated growth is high inflation and stagflation. He would surprise the market with 200 basis points in a very short amount of time and not highlight it. Whereas Greenspan liked to give some speeches. Our, uh, our high school, and this is off the cuff here, but they had a, he would always, our economics teacher would say, they would watch and there'd be analysis on how he's carrying his briefcase across the streets from me. And like that, they'd be like, is he carrying it a little tighter? Is it looser? And so I remember, I mean, that just jumped in my head right there. But I remember that level of detail back in versus what is today or what was, right. you know, a few years ago where it was just, you know, it's zero or bust. Yeah. I like that. Do they have white knuckles or not? <laughs> right. they're kind of, how, how, do they do it? how heavy does the briefcase look? <laughs> right, right. Like what's actually in the briefcase? <laughs> Kind of like a lot of uh, RBO borrowers when they would be meeting with a credit officer at a bank. Like, are they in a good mood or bad mood? Be? <laughs> What's it look like? Oh, God, he smiled. Anyways, long story short, it's fun yet scary. I mean, we're in an inflationary environment. No doubt everybody has an opinion on rates. They see mortgage rates going up. If you're a new home, home buyer, uh, that freaks people out. But there's everything that we see kind of staring us in the face, which is everything we talk about, right, with your buying a car for your 16-year-old like we're going to be doing or – You've got housing prices, you've obviously got energy prices, so it's food prices. I mean, those are the obvious ones, but we've got a huge number tomorrow, which would be, uh, we're, we're, we're taping this on the 12th, so the 13th, you get the CPI number, which is what moved the market a month ago. And that's, I mean, we kind of nailed that. Like, I don't want to meet after that. <laughs> but it's expected to once again be kind of that crazy high of, you know, 8.6 plus percent, which is wild year over year. And I would just say, like, from my standpoint, the Fed's in a real pickle. I mean, you can say they did it to themselves, but at the same time, they were kind of given a tough hand. I'm not saying pro or against. I'd love to know if you're a dove or a hawk, Blake. That would be something I definitely want to get to. We printed money, and you look yep. at history. History repeats itself. You have to pay for that at some point. And so that's that's just one aspect. But what I think what's so cool about interest rates now and why if anybody looks you in the eye and says, hey, Blake, I know what rates are going to do. Like, it's kind of not... Overly true. I think the Fed is in uncharted Similar territory. Similar to oil prices, right? Similar to oil prices. Although, if I can say, Blake told us at lunch, kind of a humble brag, that Very he did call brag. oil prices within a dollar. I think it was within 60 cents on the past podcast. But well, we can get into that later. But so I now you know, know so he had a previous podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, he's kind of a big deal. He likes leather-bound books. It's good. Um, <laughs> but anyway, long story short, they're dealt with the decision tree that if I mapped it out between supply-demand, wars, money being printed, things that are beyond their control, and I think you keep going down to FX, et cetera, they're kind of in a no-win situation <laughs> where they're picking inflation versus growth, and they've got a midterm election coming up, so you know there's, there's subcurrents there. I mean, the Fed does a pretty good job with the presidency, all jokes aside, of being independent, but if you look back at notes, and I was looking back at notes earlier from kind of the February time frame, like right after we hit the all-time high in the S&P, um, people were saying, if this war ends soon, then volatility will be reduced. And then all of a sudden you can get a market that's going to return 5 to 10% this year. And now look forward where we are four months from now. And you're like, down 20%. Yeah, there's just no, there's no way we're going 5 to 10%. We hope we're 5 to 10% down. And that's highly, highly, highly unlikely. So I'll go through it later. But there's all bursts, as I call them, where if this happens, this has always happened. When it comes to like recessionary environments, and we're like blowing through this list where it's like, well, here's one. If oil prices double in a year, recession follows, 
And that's, that would mean that's happened five times, 73, 79, 90, 00, and 08. So that would tell you that if it doubles within a calendar, not a calendar year, trailing 12 months, it'd be like 120 or 130. So I don't know what you think about that. I think the happy medium of all prices, you know, longer term is at 60 to 90. I'm sure the, our producer friends uh, like the 90 side of that better. But, you know, from an economic standpoint, it there when people are paying $5 at the pump or your you know, electricity bills $400 versus $200, that adds up, and so I don't think it's uh, sustainable. There's a lot of, uh, I want to say sustainable, the war, the, there's a lot of things that came to a head. Also, you know, I know we're going to get into some ESG stuff. There was a lot of wins against the oil space that occurred over the last five years, and I remember an engineer I worked with for many years, uh, you know, 10 years ago, and I always say, Blake, these go in five-year cycles. So if you're not investing from five years down the road, you're going to get yourself in a pickle. You're not going to see it now. And so you see it with the Gulf stuff. If it, you're not investing in those projects, which we weren't for the last five years, they're not coming online. And so you take that off the slide. Then you throw in a war. You throw in record car movement with air price, with, with prices. I think there's been a counter uh, on the, you know, the miles driven. Because people are like, wow, I don't want to deal with the airlines right now. Uh, yes, I'd rather just drive. Uh, and also there's a lot of it, – it's – the culture shift after COVID. There's a lot of factors that if you look at the playbook, like you just read off of on the, you know, what has happened in the past. Post COVID, I don't think you can apply it. There's a lot of similarities. There's also just a different mentality from the people driving those. And so, uh, long story short, what is the happy price? It's probably in the 90 range. Well, is it probably going to hover between, you know, 80 and 110 for the next five years? Sheffield at Pioneer thinks so. But the day after he said it, it was going to be over 100 or five years. It went down to 90. So, like, you don't know. And, and what you do and what we've seen, uh, not to jump the gun on the RBL market and the energy guys, is the discipline that was applied in, we'll call it the SPAT post-2018 era, post the Alta Mesa bankruptcies. That was really the big one that kind of shifted the post. Let me back up a little more. I break up the RBL world into to, to kind of three segments. pre 14, 15 downturn, there was this awkward time in that 15, 16, 17 that it felt okay, but there was a lot of things structurally that were done, and there's kind of that post-19 error, and a lot of the deals now, I mean, there'll be something we look back on in five years, like, man, we wish we would have done that, but in general, structure and pricing and things have held in that RBO market, I think are healthy, and you're seeing, you know, also the private equity guys and the public companies returning cash, hard cash to investors which is what they said, and then you have an administration come in that says, no, no, just turn it on. We want it now. Ever since, not picking political sides here, but ever since Joe Biden came in office, and even some things under the Trump era were not conducive to oil and gas producers. So you add a lot of things in that, and you kind of, here's what yeah. you have. And so, I mean, I, I was like very long-winded and reversing it's back and forth. But it, it's kind of it's kind of where you know we are today. And you asked me, I, the question I had, I wrote, that wrote this down for Brett is like, with, its, with the inflation going on, and we can pull everybody in the room and check back in in a year. So you have $10,000 to put in I-bonds, S&P 500, or Bitcoin, which would you take? Is cash an option? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Father-in-law would love that <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, I, I think you've seen... Not, we're not here to talk about crypto, but crypto is going through this crypto winter. You know, a lot of people made a lot of money in that, but now it's kind of who's going to catch the falling knife. And there's really no end to that in the foreseeable future, seeing exchanges just go bankrupt overnight, people not be able to access their coins, things like that. So I wouldn't pick crypto, though maybe there is some upside there. Definitely wouldn't pick NFTs. I think bonds, 
you'll probably get some. S&P, I think we've got ways down to go before we go back up. So I'm not joking when I say cash, but maybe not all cash, but a lot of cash. Okay. Look, the first, you know, the I-bonds have a limit of how much you can do per year. So just going to... That's why I said 10,000. Talk that smart man. Look at him. I think, side note on crypto... I view there's a future there just from, I mean, the infrastructure that's in place. I also view it, I, I kind of think in a, in a weird way, there's a correlation with ESG and crypto. They're both kind of infancy stages. You could argue that both have a long life that are going to be completely different. So it's, they're kind of apples and oranges. But at this point, they're figuring out who they are when they grow up. And we don't know who the winners and losers will be. But is there a future there? I mean, from talking to different funds i can tell you like they are accepting like these massive billion multi-billion dollar funds that are international accept crypto for their investments like they're doing test cases so there's there's this kind of underlying current and obviously we have esg that we'll get to that no doubt has a future it's just a matter of what's it going to look like you mentioned something on inflation it's the hot topic right now it's it's all people want to talk about it's this weird situation where the fed is having to hike rates when technically they would be with inflation, you have to hike rates, right? right? Cool the economy. So Got to cool the economy. So they they've left themselves with no choice. The question is, why didn't they hike rates last year? I mean, if you looked at this chart that I've got here from Bloomberg, like look at this is CPI. We got March of 21. It went over two percent. What's the Fed's mandate when it comes to price stability? It's or should 2%. we have never dropped rates during COVID and eaten some of the the pain then? You made the I think you hit it on the head. They're coming home to roost, and we're going to be paying for some of the things that we've done because uh, that, that you have to pay for it at some point. Which yeah. comes back to will there be a recession, which everybody wants to talk about. Will there be a recession? I'm in the camp, so let's ignore political stuff. Why we had to do COVID and PPP and you know print money, etc. But if they get inflation down to four to five, then the big question becomes. What does the Fed do then? Do they wait and just let it? Because keep in mind, every Fed hike or cut takes roughly six months to kind of reverberate in, in the economy. Well, we've got real-time decisions making. If you look at Governor Bullard out of St. Louis, he just said recently that, look, we're not going to stop and start, his view. We're not going to stop and start, most likely, and we're going to have a full six to eight months at least of like constant rate movement. Well, if that happens, and obviously it takes, it reverberates, but then you've got all these cool things like for the rate geeks in the room, like the two-year treasury, 10-year treasury inversion, or you could look at the three-month versus a two-year treasury inversion. And when that happens, there's cool stats that I can totally geek you out with where on average, if the three-month and the two-year invert, it's 11 months until a recession. If the two and the 10, kind of on average, those numbers are roughly 18 months. Like these are tried and true numbers, but my thing is, Two things. If they hike, they keep hiking until inflation comes down to 4 or 5% and they stop and they, they just chill out. Like people are now calling for the Fed to get to what, 35 to 4%, 3.25 to 4%, and then actually start to cut rates next year, which to me is, I'm not a huge fan of that. I feel like that's hiking and cutting. But one of the arguments is there's this thing called the Fed put, which is, hey, the Fed's always got your back. And if you're a stock market investor, right? They're going to cut rates. That's always going to create kind of a base level. Well, they can't do that now, which is why the S&P can keep falling. But if they hike rates really quick, they can cut rates just as fast. And there's your new Fed put. So there's a, a hint that like, hey, let's do 75 in June, 75 in July. Let's do another 50 or 75. Hey, let's do an intermediate cut. And let's just like blow the socks off this thing. And then next year, we can actually cut rates and make right after midterm elections. And we can all be heroes. Like that's, there's a lot of decision trees you can take there. 
So if you're if you're a borrower out there and you're looking at getting new financing for either you know refining your existing deal or growth capex going forward, and you're looking at these proposed increases and potential cuts, how are you able to evaluate or how can you give yourself some certainty that the pricing you're going to get today or the pricing you're going to get six months from now is going to be something that you have any certainty over? Is it all that different than how you do commodity hedging? It's I, it's the same in my book because you know we like I know from an oil perspective or an oil and gas perspective you know as prices ran up as quickly as they did a lot of people had been hedged you know pretty severely at low prices uh, but at the time you know I heard when oil was at ninety you know guys were complaining they were locked in at sixty can't hedge anymore this year I was like the only reason you had to lock in at sixty is because you were you loved to at the time because the price was forty and you could lock that in but also you had too much leverage, and your banks demanded it or required it. And is that if banks are dictating your your hedge strategy, that's a bad thing? I know every RBL deal has most, you know, especially on the, the lower high yield, you know, single B, double Bs, have some sort of hedging structure that really hasn't fallen away. But the guys that manage their balance sheet, you know, every deal we've done this year, we've done 17 new deals this year. I think maybe one has been over one times levered. I mean, it's just it, it is that's why. unbelievable. Why? And it's priced well, and so the structure and pricing has stayed in the RBL market. And I think there's been a lot of religion in the last five years, kind of that post Altamesa, whoopsie number two type range. I don't want to pick on Altamesa, just that was the bigger one of it. Uh, there was plenty during that time. Kind of feels like you're picking on them. So. No, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's all public. It's yeah, all public. Yeah. And so from a that standpoint, it's been nice to see. Now it's. What is the next thing? Because someone, another banker called me and was like, how are you evaluating energy deals these days? And I was like, well, pretty much a lot, very similar to how we always been. It's asset base and management teams. Like it really goes down to those two things. It's, you know, if you're doing a tier three asset with a tier three management team at a hundred dollar oil, you're probably fine. But when oil goes down, you're probably not going to be fine. If you're doing guys you've done business with for many years that know how to operate and how to bring in the people to operate the right basin, you're in tier one, tier two, or well-priced tier three basins, entry price and ability to lock in, it's pretty good. And so we've seen a lot of lot more deals kind of start sliding across the desk where it's like, you know, that's we're good. Thanks a lot. You know, good luck to you. And I think with it, with a sustained high oil price, the workover rigs come out. There's a lot of you know everybody gets smart instantly, and I think we'll see more of that. But from what I've seen, and knock on wood, the, the, the discipline has stayed both on the borrower and the, the, the lender side. And, and you really need those to be you know, synced up to, to have a, a strong market like that. Well, and you've, you've seen more traditional banks either get out of space to internal policies, be it ESG, be it societal pressures of just you know, oil being perceived as not something that's desirable given climate change or just because they took losses in the last downturn. So as you've seen fewer of the commercial banks continue to provide that financing, are you seeing more of a, at least from what we've seen, you're not really seeing borrowers pushing covenant levels like you used to at, at the height of the prior peak. You're not seeing the increased leverage ratios. You're not seeing the looser covenants. Well, in the prior cycles, you had 60 to 80 banks, depending on, you know, if you include the European investment banks or the small regionals that step in. Um, honestly, being one of the active banks in the space that were you know, since 19 when this group came over to uh, independent financial, it's 
20, maybe 30, all the big guys, you know, they pick and choose what they're doing. They're leading the right deals. But when you only have that many banks to fill out a significant amount of RBLs, um, they, it, it's on the lender's terms and they get to pick and choose. And one thing we've done, and the, I think we mentioned the 17 or 18 deals we've done so far this year was it's been on deals where we know the management team, we know the sponsor, we know the family office, whoever we're doing it with, and there's a deep relationship. And those, it's through multiple cycles. And so Blake and Brett and Ryan Olin Gas go out tomorrow and try to raise it. And they're like, all right, what have you done? And you're like, well, done nothing. We did a podcast once and it was wildly successful. You know, <laughs> something like that. So there, there's, the market is very much constrained. Like if you talk to the major syndication house, Wells, JP, you know, et cetera, they're going to tell you, it's like, it's hard to raise the dollars and it's like a two to $400 million RBL can get done. It's no problem. It's the five to billion dollar RBL. They're just, when you go from, like I said, 60 to 80 to 20 to 30 normal participants falls apart. In the market. And not only that, it's, they all learn their lessons. Like, wait, if I take a hundred million of an RBL and it goes bad, that's a big hickey. But if I take 30 million of an RBL, I can manage through that. And so, Commitment levels are down. There's just a lot, a lot of lessons I've learned, and unfortunately, it's kind of guilty by association. So whether you're a great company or this, is your the lessons of the past are going to be applied to you. And it's not, like I said, it's in five years. I hope not, but it's, there's going to be something that's like, man, we really should have thought about that. We've kind of got the science dialed in, but there's always going to be something. Something's going to shift. Something's going to break that you're like, wow, we should have thought about that. Thank you all again so much for joining uh, Aaron and I today. And thank everyone for listening to our Let's Talk Lending podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast via Apple, iTunes, or Google, or by visiting the Winston Strong website for more insights on the latest market updates, the trends, and the finance practice area. 